This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be with you. Please visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for, the, excuse me, sign up there for the emails, the uh, daily emails to go out to what you need to know, as, and also track down all these great interviews we're doing. We've got a lot of, we've had some great, great speakers in the last couple of weeks. All right, uh, today as we open, and I hope everybody had a wonderful long weekend, Fourth uh, of July, it was a great holiday for me and my family, and uh, I hope so many others. And I, you know, many folks I've heard talk about how they are celebrating Independence Day, Independence Day from the great uh, Wuhan breakdown, the great Wuhan pandemic that was forced upon us. I kind of feel the same way. I feel like it's time to just move on and uh, say, hey. We are not um, going to be held back anymore. We're not going to buy into the. We're not going to buy into the hype. I mean, again, there's some people that got really sick. I was with some friends over the holiday weekend, and uh, a couple of them got really, really sick. Uh, one of them, well, one friend. I, this is the first for me. One friend. Uh, two friends, actually. Two friends of mine uh, had good, close friends get very, very sick. One of them died. Six-year-old man died. And another one uh, I know really well had the what they call the long haul, where they were sick and it, they stayed sort of sick for a long time. So anyway, but we're celebrating getting past it. The Wuhan breakdown, the Wuhan pandemic, it feels like Independence Day, and I hope you celebrate it with your family. I had a great time. We'll talk more about that later. But today, what I want to spend time on is going to be surprising to you. Maybe. And that is the Hunter Biden laptop. The Hunter Biden laptop. And I want to use it to show you how powerful the narrative machine is. Remember, I've been talking about the narrative machine for about, uh, let's see, six months, maybe a little bit less than six months. And the narrative machine is made up of big tech big media and big government and they work together and they work together to only let you know certain things and if they decide that you're not going to know something or they're going to decide what you know they got all that power big tech does it by uh, shaping your brain through neuroscience big media does it by shape shaping your your mind through brainwashing and big government enforces it against the people through their actions or inactions. So this is the this is the deal with the Biden laptop. The, remember, I think it's actually two laptops. They are now verified as Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden's laptops. And people who are not in law enforcement have seen them and have all the data and have put out the data. And over the last few weeks, some more details emerged of email exchanges between uh, the... Um, between the uh, Hunter Biden camp himself and a guy named Louis Freeze, Louis Freeze, and uh, Louis Freeze is um, is um, is uh, a a prominent lawyer, a very prominent lawyer um, who is. Um, who is uh, employed? At, he was the FBI director under Bill Clinton. Then, he, before that, he was a, f- a federal judge. And since Bill Clinton got out of office, uh, it has been Louis Free's been practicing law. I think at a big law firm in Washington D.C. area. So he's a very much a, uh, a very much an insider and an insider Democrat. Um, and um, it is uh, um, it is he is exchanging emails with Hunter Biden. And the emails are saying, we gave $100,000 to your brother's foundation. We'd sure like to talk to your dad about coming and working with us. Now, this is happening as clear as can be. And it's clearly now it may not be illegal, 
But that's a major story, isn't it? Isn't it a major story that Louis Free, the former FBI director, is actually having an exchange with uh, Hunter Biden about his father and about what's happening? And here's my point. No one is talking about it. Can you imagine if one of Donald Trump's kids was exchanging emails about possibly going and getting... um, some uh, and some exchange, some some uh, uh, giving money to a foundation, and then pitching dad on legal work. Wouldn't that be amazingly uh, important? And it was April of 2016. So the expectation, obviously, was within a few months, Joe Biden was no longer going to be in office. He was going to, you know, there's going to be a new, it was at that time, they probably thought it was going to be President Clinton and her Vice President Tim Kaine. But the fact is, we have the, the back and forth. Imagine if it was Donald Trump's kids. Imagine. And it was a foundation. Again, it may not be illegal what they're doing, but it, my goodness, it's a conflict of interest. And it, le- it rent- lends itself to understanding what else is on the laptop. What else is on the laptop? What does it mean? And here's the reality. The only people that have even tried to cover it are the New York Post. And when they did, they were silenced on, get ready for it, big tech. Social media, websites. You do a search right now, you can barely find it. So you had big tech silencing the story. You had big media literally ignoring it. And here's the kill shot. You had no investigation by the FBI, by anybody else. And so the story, we have no one in America except for one reporter, one writer at the New York Post who can't get any traction on it, talking about the issue. The power of the narrative machine couldn't be on greater display. And now watch the flip side of the narrative machine. We have the Trump organization investigated by what? Big government, the, the New York uh, district attorney. And we have the amplification of the story on CNN saying, oh, my gosh, it's the end of the world. It's a major investigation. And big tech is happy to ride along. And the narrative is the Trump family and Trump and his organization are under investigation for criminal wrongdoing, which, by the way, may not be may, may not be untrue as a statement. Because they have a big government working along with them. But my point is this. The power of what's happening with the narrative machine has the ability to kill a story. To end a story. You don't even know what's on Hunter Biden's laptop. Because Hunter Biden is not even, uh, he's not allowed to be touched. Hunter Biden is selling his artwork for tens of thousands of dollars right now. How is that not? It's like Billy Bush beer. Everybody thought that was embarrassing, but at a certain point, you also have a pattern. You have a pattern of, 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 of issues around Hunter Biden, and yet it's no coverage. It's extraordinary to watch. And look, the narrative machine is being used in overdrive, right, on the January 6th situation. It's also been the, so there's I have to come up with this um, uh, with the, the, the theory. I have to fine tune the theory because the narrative machine not only will will make a lie true. It will make the truth disappear, right? It's like I used to say, um, I used to like, you never you ever go to get change and people don't even get change anymore. You go, when you go to the store and someone, the, the, and you have cash and someone says uh, to you, um, I have, uh, your, your, your bill comes to $7.26 and you think to yourself, I don't want to give them a 10 and end up with 74 cents back. No, no, I want to find a quarter and a penny and I want to 
proactively, I want to proactively avoid the change, right? And I used to say proactive change making. Proactive change making was the avoidance of having to carry around three quarters or not. In this case, oh, 76 would be three quarters, but make it even better and you could have it be like 74 cents. No, no, it would have been 74 cents. That would have been, that would have been two quarters, two dimes, and four pennies. That's what it would have taken to get back and $2 bills. So you do proactive, proactive change making. And, and this is anyway, it's a silly thing. I love to talk about it, though. It, with the narrative machine, you either have the ability for them to tell us, make the truth disappear and make a lie into the truth. And that we've never had something as powerful as this. It's never existed like this. It's extraordinary to see, it's a wonder to behold, and it's a damage to our country. And we're only seeing this, we're only seeing this in the, in, at this time with, uh, with, because of the power, the coming together of the power of big tech, big media, and the big government. And my point is, I believe we don't know how this will impact 2022's elections. It's almost impossible to understand how it impacts 2022's elections. So watch out for it. Watch out for it. That's an example. The, the Biden laptop and now the Louis free payments make you think more and more about the power of the narrative machine and the narrative machine. I got to write this up. It's so, so so important to realize how they make the narrative machine makes the truth disappear and how it makes the lies into the truth you see. Stunning. All right, everybody, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll talk with John Schlafly about a recent Supreme Court decision and a lot more. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We will be back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We're catching up with our old friend Tammy Nichols, who is on the front lines in Idaho. And uh, we got an update a few weeks ago about her colleague, the, the lieutenant governor who has filed to run for governor. And uh, maybe we'll get back into that. We'll talk a little bit later about that because it is, um, well, it's going to be quite a thing to see. So, But I want to talk to her right now. And uh, welcome back. Tammy Nichols, of course, is a state legislator in the assembly in Idaho and uh, specifically talk about Idaho. Idaho and COVID because the I call it the Wuhan breakdown. I celebrated the 4th of July, Tammy, and I said the Wuhan breakdown, it's over. I'm not going to go any further no matter what anybody says. I just think this is the it was a new Independence Day. So, uh Tammy, what Tammy Nichols, tell us how how do you how do you grade Idaho? Now, you're a state legislator. You got friends all over the country. You've seen things. Uh, Idaho has led the nation on some conservatism. How do you grade Idaho? compared to other states? Well, hi, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, so in comparison to other states for the whole COVID thing, and I agree, I I think so many people are so over it, and it was so nice to be able to celebrate Independence Day and see people together again and having a good time. Uh, So I would probably give our state right now probably about a C Mm. um, for for Idaho as far Mm. as how things were handled for COVID. Right. Um, You know, people think Idaho is a very conservative state, and we are overall. We have very conservative people, but our government is kind of going the other direction, unfortunately. And we had lots of things that um, many people don't even realize happened in Idaho. 
Um, you know, we weren't as severe as, as some other states that are around us, like Oregon and California, um, some of those areas. But we still had issues that um, really surprised a lot of people that Idaho would do these sorts of things. And we have things, I mean, we're still in a stage four, believe it or not. Really? And um, yes. And the only reason is that because of the money, our governor, our, our executive branch wants that money. And so they are keeping us in a stage four, even though I have not seen an emergency around me for quite some time now. Hmm. And that they're still keeping us in a stage four. Our, our schools were closed. People were not allowed to go to church, which is a constitutional issue. Right. Um, we devastated small businesses by, by picking essential and non-essential. Um, that was a horrible thing to have happen. We, we uh, drove fear into people um, in regards to being able to be out and about. Now, I, for one, and many people that I know, we lived our lives pretty normal, as, as normal as we possibly could through the whole thing. We were not allowing fear to take over and live our lives for us. So, so, you know, we had that, um, we had, um, several, our, our election laws were changed. The date was changed and it was not even done through the legislative process as it's supposed to be. It was done through the executive branch. And, uh, and so it messed up, um, our election date and some of our election laws. So we had several things that transpired. And, and one of the most horrible ones is that because of what we were doing, with our schools and and uh, keeping those shut down is we had a huge increase in domestic violence and child abuse in a, a suicide attempts. Um, we had a, a, a large percentage that that went up because of the um, things that we were doing in our state. So Idaho could have done, I think, a lot better in, in regards to some of these things. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have been careful like every other state was during the beginning because we didn't know what we were dealing with. Mm-hmm. But as time progressed and as we've seen things transpire, I mean, it's it's amazing that we're still in a stage four. I can't, I still cannot even believe that because you go anywhere in Idaho right now and you'll hardly see any masks um, being worn or, or businesses, you know, they're, they're pretty well back to normal, all that sort of stuff. But people really need to remember what did transpire and that, um, you know, for being the state that we are and the conservative state that we are, we did a lot of things that more liberal states were doing. And, hmm. and that's unfortunate. We're talking with Tammy Nichols and Tammy represents the 11th district uh, in Idaho in this uh, state assembly. And uh, uh, Tammy, the, um, I want to hone in on the students. I mean, you, you have a, a big family, and obviously, you know, you 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 care about that issue, education wise, and all. It, did is does Idaho in other parts of the country, and it, it spilled over into this critical race theory fight now. A few states over from you in Colorado, the the National Teachers Union had a meeting recently, and they said our you know number one priority is going to be to fight for critical race theory. They'll rename it. They'll call it equity, and then fight against the parents who object. But I, but I, but on the issue of COVID, I think people maybe forget. The teachers' unions dominated the the the, um, the influence, or their, their influence was dominant. I think on CDC and others. And then when Joe Biden was running for president, he said, "I, I promise you, I will make sure to listen to the teachers' unions first and foremost." And he's done that. I mean, he's not shy yeah. about it. Did that? Does a state like Idaho, which again has a reputation to, for being more conservative, did the teachers' union play an outsized influence? Is that the political reality, or or what's your sense on this? The, the students, how? played out oh absolutely yeah we had um some of the teachers unions in our in our state that were 
telling people just point blank, we are not reopening. We are not doing face-to-face. We're not, you know, allowing students back in the classroom. Um, and so, yeah, so there was a lot of, a uh, lot of input that the unions gave uh, in regards to what was going to transpire with um, getting kids back in, in the school. Um, and so, and we had parents rise up here in several parts of the state. Um, in fact, they're still working on some stuff because there are, still um, unions and, and districts that are saying, well, we don't know what we're going to do for this next school year. Uh, if we're going to be going back or if kids are going to have to wear masks or if they're going to have to be vaccinated or, you know, all this sort of stuff. So there's still a push. Yeah. And what, what the National Education Association, and they just um, uh, passed several policies, uh, including critical race theory, but one of theirs um, that they had on the docket was in regards to um, kids manda- mandatory mask wearing, mandatory vaccinations for all mm-hmm. kids going back into school. And so these are very concerning things. Parents around my state are very concerned about what's transpiring in their children's education. And that's why we saw so many parents pull their kids out of school, out of public education, and find alternative ways to be able to educate them because they were sick and tired of what was, what was uh, transpiring and having their kids be used as a as a tool as a weapon almost um, on what was going to transpire in, in the education system. Is, is I think it, if mm-hmm. no, it, well, has it has it has it spawned uh, a a movement for school choice? I mean, that's one thing I sort of hoped it would get parents to say, you know what, I want more control over this, and I'm not sure it's happened as much as I thought. You know, in Idaho, we did pass a couple of bills that um, help uh, with, with school choice type options. We actually had a couple of other bills that were very much in favor of school choice and, and funding students versus funding systems. And uh, we, we felt we ended up with some problems with that on the Senate side. And so we're going to we're going to have to bring that back. I think we can see more and more where parents want that option. Parents want the choice on how their kids are being educated. And I think this push with um, the mandatory masks and, and vaccinations, um, this push with critical race theory, this push in so many different with, uh, you know, uh, sports and biological males competing against Uh, biological females i think with all these pushes it's going to drive parents more and more to demand the option of school choice and to demand that their tax dollars go where they want them to go to educate their children and i think parents are going to be the ultimate um reason on making those changes in each of our states because they are going to have to demand these changes uh, again, we're talking with uh, Tammy Nichols. I think earlier, Tammy, I did not put in. Uh, Tammy Nichols is uh, District 11. She represents in Idaho in the legislature. Her website, NicholsForIdaho.com. NicholsForIdaho.com. Nichols is N-I-C-H-O-L-S. NicholsForIdaho.com. Check out all her stuff there. Uh, Tammy is the... So let's talk a little politics just for a minute. The lieutenant governor challenging the sitting governor, probably both in the same party, Republicans, probably pretty uncommon. I mean, I know in some states there's no real Democratic party or in other states there's no Republican party right so the fight is in the primary but usually a governor's uh, got enough uh, horsepower to fight off the, the a challenge like this how how is it shaking out now and and what is the lay of the land now yeah, you know, it's gonna, it'll be an interesting race. You're right. It does not happen very often where you have, um, you know, the same party, uh, running against each other, uh, in the primary like that. Um, but, you know, we've, we've heard from so many people that are just, um, they're not happy with how things were done. 
they feel that our governor is very milk toast and uh, and that he um, did not take the initiative in so many different ways. Um, you know, we see what Florida is doing with the Santas over there and the things that they're implementing in the, and how he's taking a very strong leadership role. And Idaho should be doing that. Idaho should be initiating that on our side of the of the nation, and we're not. And so that's really created a lot of concern, and a lot of um, people are not happy that Idaho has not taken that leadership role as it should. And so, um, you know, our lieutenant governor ha uh, has taken a lot of arrows. She has done some things that have been uh, very forthcoming um, for our state and that people really like. And so she is um, challenging the, hmm. the current governor. And I think it'll make for a, for a very interesting uh, election. <laughs> When is when is when is that pri when is that primary? So the primary will be next May in twenty twenty two. Yep. Wow. And so uh, it'll be coming up uh, fast and furious. But mm -hmm. um, you know she has a good a good chance, and a lot of uh, people all over the state really like her, and they like what she's done. Hmm. And uh, you know, and we feel we see a lot of women that are actually stepping up and and taking on those leadership responsibilities. Uh, when when the men that are in their state, uh, you know, do, doing the thing are, are not, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. right. And um, and so we're seeing more and more of that, which which is a good thing. It, it, it's uh, disheartening that we can't get some of some of our guys to do it. But, you <laughs> know, a, it's, it's the way it is. That's so, another. Um, that's, that's another show. That's for another show, another time. Tammy Nichols, thanks very much for your time, and uh, keep up the good fight. we got to run. We'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our old friend John Schlafly is with us again. John Schlafly, of course, he writes a column over at townhall.com. That's very important. Uh, but he also is the uh, one of the leaders of the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles and ha has um, contributed amicus briefs to the many courts and been active. And he himself is a lawyer. And I wanted to highlight, I mentioned this last week briefly, uh, but I want to highlight in some depth the importance of the recent Supreme Court decision about the Arizona laws on elections and on election uh, security. So welcome back, John. How are you? Uh, great, Ed. Good to talk to you today. Good to talk to you. So, John, walk us through for the, the layman, for the, the new listener, what the decision was and why it's important. I heard you speak. I should tell you all, John Schlafly, who leads our Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, was on a call with a number of our Phyllis Schlafly Eagle leaders earlier today. And I heard him uh, talk about this in such a way. I thought, boy, it's a good summary. Uh, and so, John, walk us through exactly what the case was and is and why it matters. Well, uh, the background Ed, is that Arizona passed these two good election integrity provisions by a voter initiative. The voters adopted them over a decade ago. Uh, one of them provided uh, that to, uh, a ban on ballot harvesting, and the other provided that voters have to vote in their own precinct. Now, uh, you know, we could discuss each of those rules in detail and why they're important and necessary. Of course, there are two of dozens of provisions that need to be implemented in every state. And, uh, you know, we've all watched the law passed in Georgia a couple of months ago, a law passed in Iowa, the law that is, will be brought up, we ho hope, in the special session in the state of Texas and a couple of other states 
to preserve election integrity. But these are two important ones. Um, and the Supreme Court six to three said, yes, states can pass provisions like that. But even more important than that, Ed, uh, the Supreme Court set new standards for how um, how um, state laws uh, will be can be challenged uh, in federal court, because as your listeners with will recall, uh, we've seen over the last decade that time after time in state after state, uh, legislatures, usually Republicans, have passed provisions to safeguard their elections, only to find that the ACLU and the other usual suspects have brought a lawsuit and they found a friendly Obama judge to first suspend the law and, and then overturn it. And um, the argument they make in almost every one of these cases um, is that the election integrity laws have what lawyers call a disparate impact on minority voters. And, uh, you know, the best example of that is this question about voting on the Sunday before Election Day. Now, some states have allowed early voting. Some states don't allow early voting. States do not have to allow early voting. And if they do allow early voting, uh, it can be limited. It can be limited during business hours Hmm. on regular days. It doesn't have to be on a Sunday. And yet where a state had allowed early voting on Sunday, federal court said, once you have it, you can never, ever repeal it or change it. Why? Because, um, you know, in some cities, African-American churches have launched a practice they call souls to the polls, whereby, you know, churchgoers in black communities go to church and then they go vote on Sunday. And so the argument that the judge says is that if you re- once these provisions are allowed, they can never be restricted or limited. In other words, or if, if a state had, we'll say, allowed 15 days of early voting and the state legislature cut it to 10, the court would say, no, you can't do that because that limits opportunities for people have trouble getting to the polling place. Well, the new Supreme Court decision, Ed, basically throws out all of those uh, lower court decisions and any new cases like that, because the new Supreme Court decision says that it's okay to have a small burden on voting as long as voters still have an ample opportunity to cast their ballot which of course they do. And we want every voter to have the opportunity to cast their ballot. But people can pass their ballot on election day and they can cast their ballot in limited circumstances if they can't get to the polls on election days under more restricted circumstances, such as uh, providing ample amount of voter ID and uh, uh, signature, you know, providing witnesses and so forth. Those are small burdens, but they're not enough of a burden to prevent a state from passing those restrictions. So, you know, 
the Supreme Court is based, I, I interpret that the new decision uh, Ed, as telling the states, uh, have at it. Do what you need to do in order to secure the ballot for all Americans. And, uh, so, John, John, we're talking with John Schlafly. John, so let me summarize, though. This is That's why I'm telling people about how important it is to understand where the victories were. In the past, in 2020, there was a 1,000-plus lawyers on the Democrat side. They were using really smart tactics and legal arguments to say, hey, we need to lower the threshold of signature verifications because of COVID. We need to have more drop boxes because of COVID, whatever. And the arguments, they, they, they should have been struck down in lots of places, but that's what they did. It, what the, the the important thing about this now is it removes the Supreme Court case removes a, a major aspect of what Republicans or conservatives would often fear, which is the courts will tie this up. It basically the the, the Supreme Court, the six person majority said, look, you can really do almost anything to secure your elections that you, the states, seem see fit because you're the ones that know and the Constitution empowered it, and they can't run in and say, uh, just because it affected some people and some races that it can be struck down. I mean, it, it really should be a bigger story in terms of the upcoming elections than it seems to be. What's the what's the hole in the in the, is there a hole you see? Is it is the hole in the in the in our uh, well, the gap in this is it that we don't have enough state legislatures that want to pass these things is that is that you mentioned how it took 10 years to appeal do you fear that we'll have obama lower courts or court of appeals judges that will able to tie something up for years before the supreme court how, what do you what's the is there a downside that people should know about is there what are the what are the problems or or or, or fears you have well first of all just just to be clear i i don't want to say that just just any uh, provision will automatically pass, uh, but they, they do have to establish that uh, that there's an ample opportunity to vote for all eligible citizens. And once that is the case, uh, we can have you know reasonable restrictions that uh, promote election integrity. But there are dozens of those that should be considered. And and all you have to do is go down the list of what was passed in Georgia, which is likely to survive now, despite eight court cases that have already been filed. Those cases will probably be thrown out. Now, the problem uh, still exists, though, that, well, you saw what happened in Texas, where the Republicans were unable to get a bill passed during the regular session. And now they're depending on uh, the governor to call a special session. Uh, so uh, because... And as you well know, uh, the Democrats in states and as in Congress have identified voting in elections as their top priority. And they realize that this is their they think they think this is their chance to uh, to create a lot for themselves in the future Hmm. by, in effect, saying that the the what happened in 2020 will be permanent. And, uh, you know, it's as if they're saying we're going to have to wear masks for the rest of our lives. No, we're going back to we're throwing our masks away in many cases. And likewise, uh, we're going back to vote in person at the polling place in most cases, uh, unless unless there's good cause for Hmm. casting a mail ballot. But if we do cast a mail ballot, there have to be extra safeguards. And yes, there are extra burdens associated with that. Uh, in order to ensure the integrity of a mailed-in ballot so that hopefully only 
a small minority of voters will claim that option. So, um, so, so that's what the, fa- the there's going to be a fight in every state, and uh, there's still going to be court cases, and we still have to, uh, you know, prevent the the passage of HR one in the con- in the Senate, which has already passed the House. Mm-hmm. Things look a lot better now, thanks to the Supreme Court decision of last week. All right, John, I think we'll have to leave it there. John Schlafly, it's important. I hope to see uh, more writing on this. I think people need to understand better, and also they need the, the grassroots need to understand so they can uh, they can encourage their state legislators to uh, to move with even more urgency or maybe more broadly on this. So, all right, John, thank you very much. John Schlafly, everybody, we appreciate that, John, and uh, we will take a break, and we will be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We'll be back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. For more than two decades, the Cheney and Bush families and Karl Rove have run the Republican Party by controlling fundraising. In 2016, Jeb Bush raised and spent more than $130 million from his powerful network of donors at a cost of $46 million per delegate that he received. While Bush was raking in the cash, Karl Rove was making fear-mongering predictions. He said that if Donald Trump became the Republican nominee, Democrats would win the White House and the Senate. History shows that the exact opposite happened. Trump became president, and his coattails lifted many Republican senatorial candidates to victory, such as Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. Yet the Bush-Cheney-Rove triumvirate has never accepted their defeat, and they've never acknowledged what Trump has achieved. The point person in Congress for the never-Trumpers became Liz Cheney, daughter of Dick Cheney. Yet Liz barely even resides in the state she claims to represent. It was a famous father and big out-of-state donors that gave her a congressional seat, not the grassroots support from We the People. Liz Cheney's shoehorn maneuver to gain power for herself is bad enough, but even worse is how hard she works to eliminate elected officials with real grassroots support. Liz Cheney works hard to purge conservatives from influence and even seeks to defeat them in their own primaries. She backed a primary opponent to conservative representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky, whom Massey went on to defeat with a titanic 81% support. Although Representative Massey proved that it's possible to defeat the donor class Republicans led by Cheney, grassroots activists should not become complacent with their power. Donor-class Republicans are every bit as swampy as their Democrat counterparts, which means they don't play by the same rules as the rest of us. Our greatest tool in the fight to defeat Cheney and her ilk is the ballot box. As long as the fight for election integrity continues, there's still hope to stop Democrats and establishment Republicans from buying offices outright. Our top priority must be to build meaningful confidence in the electoral process, And our second priority must be to elect officials who enjoy meaningful support from the grassroots in their respective districts. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we think it's time to take Washington back from the power brokers. At phyllisschlafly.com, we're organizing a grassroots movement to stand against the deep state bureaucrats who control government. For the latest strategies, go to phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report.
back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And uh, let's uh, wrap things up today uh, by talking a little bit more specifically about how I believe we will see uh, history right about this uh, period. And I, I heard, I think the first person I heard say this was actually uh, the uh, Dilbert guy, Scott Adams, who said about a month or two ago that Independence Day for him was going to be the Independence Day from the Wuhan virus. He doesn't call it that, I do. And I call it the Wuhan breakdown. Now, everything that happened because of the Wuhan breakdown, the Wuhan virus, all the breakdown of our economy, of our schools, of uh, so many things. Uh, July 4th was an ending. All the rest of this is a debate over what uh, what to make of it all. And I, look, I don't I, even the debate about vaccines and all. I just think that at this point, I know the numbers are very different. About ninety percent of Democrats uh, believe you should get vaccinated. Forty five percent of Republicans. Obviously, we're at a point where no matter what the topic is, half are going to be on one side, half are going to be on. Excuse me. No matter what the topic is, one side Democrats are going to think it's great, like Fauci. The other side is going to say, I doubt it. I have to say, I doubt it feels like the right position right about now. In other words, how many times have we been lied to by the quote-unquote science? And it's happening again, by the way. Remember about three months ago, CNN had a leaked uh, Project Veritas video. Excuse me, a, a, not leaked. A, a Project Veritas did one of their undercover videos, and they had a producer for CNN saying, yeah, the next thing we're going to do is we're going to cover the uh, the climate crisis, and we're going to really ramp that up. We're going to start using really scary language. Well, lo and behold, CNN is now calling all of the hot in the summer, all of the hot summer weather is blamed on climate change, and we should be scared it's getting worse and worse. They don't have facts to back it up. They don't have data. They don't have anything at all, but they just say it, and they assert it with such seriousness. And again, the narrative machine kicks in, and they dominate people's lives, and there you are. But look, I think that they, when it comes to the, the Wuhan breakdown, the Wuhan breakdown of, of the world, July 4th, 2021 is an endpoint. And I think the American people feel that. And it's not just one party. I, I mentioned to you, I was in uh, Massachusetts last week for part of the week and then Rhode Island on the weekend. And a lot of Democrats, a lot of Democrats are just saying we're getting on with our lives. They may not want to point fingers at their person, their, their congressman or their uh, senator or anybody, but they just know they're not going to be bound by the craziness anymore. And here's where I say we're headed towards a showdown. And I hope it's a showdown that yields something really positive for America, but I'm not sure yet. And that is, and you heard reference to it a few a segment, two segments ago with uh, Tammy Nichols, the NEA met in Colorado and the NEA decided to endorse the fight for critical race theory, they call it equity, and especially that they will fight against any of the parents who are opposed. In other words, the teachers' unions are willing to take a stand against the parents that they disagree with. The problem for the teachers' union is they're the racists. They've trapped so many kids, in black, poor black kids and black and brown kids in, in failing schools. They're the only ones that are racist. But now they're going to fight for this race theory. And they're going to fight against parents. I'm sorry. The problem is the parents who oppose this are not of one race. They're not of one party. They're just fed up with the idea of doing this to their kids. So I think it's backfiring and backfiring profoundly. 
I guess we'll see. But um, so that's what you got to know on that. All right. Well, listen, everybody, I want to say thank you. I had a rough week last week. I didn't go into it on the air, but you may have heard we replayed a few segments because I was on the road, some family issues and all. And it was really challenging. And our producer on this program, the great Noah Dingley, did did yeoman's work to keep it all together. And I can't thank him enough. So uh, thank you, Noah. And thank you to Joanna for booking our guests. And thank you for listening. Well, we'll be back. Tomorrow, things are back to normal-ish. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.